It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name's Hannah Feldman. Steve Scrovan is off today. I'm your guest host here with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Good morning. And of course, we have the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. Get ready for a special kind of show. Our first guest today, Steve McNamara, has been making newspapers for more than five decades. He got a start as a reporter and editor, and in 1966, Steve and his wife Kay bought the Pacific Sun, one of the country's oldest alternative weekly newspapers, and they published the Sun in Marin County, California until 2004. When the warden at San Quentin Prison, just down the road from them, revived the prison's inmate-run newspaper in 2008, he assembled a team of volunteer advisors. They helped get it off the ground and mentored the incarcerated men who would be writing and editing the paper. And this team included Steve McNamara. Today, the San Quentin News is the largest prison newspaper in California. And it's distributed to every prison in the state, as well as to independent subscribers. It's also available in its entirety online for free. We'll speak to Mr. McNamara about the unique challenges of publishing a newspaper from inside a prison, as well as the challenges that come with publishing any independent local paper. We'll also talk about how the paper helps build community pride and prepares its staff for the transition out of San Quentin, plus how the San Quentin News program fits into the changing criminal justice system in California. Our second guest will be Peter Lurie, president of the Center for Science and the Public Interest. The CSPI is an independent science-based consumer advocacy organization. For more than 50 years, they have held industry and government accountable to the public health and advocated for a safer and healthier food system. Mr. Lurie will join us to discuss the center's many victories on behalf of consumers, as well as their ongoing advocacy and education work. Plus, if you're wondering why the United States hasn't ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, you are not alone. To close out today's show, Ralph will respond to one dubious justification for the United States inaction. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's get the latest news out of San Quentin. David? Steve McNamara is a newspaper publisher, editor, reporter, and volunteer advisor for the San Quentin News, a newspaper written and published by those incarcerated at San Quentin. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Steve McNamara. I'm very glad to be here. Welcome indeed, Steve. Listeners might be interested in knowing that Steve and I were classmates at Princeton, class of 1955. And he is a long career in journalism for over 30 years. He was the editor of a weekly in Marin County near San Francisco. So I think today people are going to get a view of prisons that is not ordinarily narrated. Most of the information about prisons occurs when there's a expose of especially brutish conditions in prisons or if there happens to be an, an uprising or maybe a contagious influenza sweeping through a prison. But today you're going to get a real upbeat view of what happens when prison wardens have a rehabilitation attitude and 
That is expressed throughout this 24-page monthly newspaper called the San Quentin News, written by the incarcerated and advancing social justice is its subtitle. And Steve has been a longtime advisor. And I want to give you, Steve, an opportunity to give people a sense of what this newspaper contains and how it has reduced the recidivism rate to zero for prisoners who have worked on the paper, either writing for editing or layout or even photography. Give us a sense of the San Quentin News and how widely is it distributed throughout prisons in California and elsewhere? Good questions. When the warden asked me and two other newspaper people to get this back off the ground, <laughs> the warden, a guy, wonderful guy named Bob Ayers, he hadn't a clue as to how to put out a newspaper. He just knew and he told me that the most important item in a prison is information. And most of the information that's passed around from inmates from, you know, cell to cell or down in the lower yard is wrong. And he wanted to have a newspaper that was not the warden's newsletter, and it wasn't backing up the prison system, but it was simply an expression of the news that prisoners wanted to exchange among each other. And that's what he got. But it took a little while because at the beginning, we just printed 5,000 copies. It was a four-page paper, and it just went to the inmates in San Quentin, which is the oldest prison in California and one of 34 different prisons. So what had to happen is the inmates who hadn't a clue as how to put out a newspaper had to be taught how to do it. And after 15 years, they're terrific. They really put out a wonderful newspaper. And as Ralph has mentioned, the recidivism rate among the inmates is zero. There by now, at the beginning, there were three inmates. Now there are about 30. And actually, the problem that we have is the turnover is terrific because they keep getting paroled or serving their sentences. I mean, that's not a problem for them, but it is a problem if you're putting out a newspaper. And it comes out monthly and it's now yes. 24 pages? Yes. And the press run is 35,000. It goes to all of California's 34 prisons, plus about, oh, about 10 other prisons throughout the country. And how's it funded? Not by the state of California. The state of California's prison system provides computers and office space. But all of the, well, the ink for the printers, well, the printing bill, which is the main item on the expense chart, is paid for by foundations. Ford Foundation helps, San Francisco Foundation, some private foundations help. But altogether, the budget by now has gone from, I'd say, about I started an organization called the Prison Media Project and went around and knocked on some doors I knew and got the money, which was about five or $10,000. By now, there's a budget of about $250,000 a year, and it's all privately raised. And when this distribution occurs throughout the prisons in California, it's free, right? Yes. That's and a kind of a small story in itself. Originally, you know, as you probably know, many people know, prisons are little empires, and the emperor is the warden, and what he decides goes. And many, if not most of the uh, other wardens in California, wanted no part of this damn newspaper. And so we had a lot of trouble getting it distributed. But by now, it's become very popular with the inmates throughout the state. 
and with many of the correctional officers as well, because we've made some intelligent decisions. Some was to write personality profiles of some of the better correctional officers and of the programs that take place during the prison. And do the 30 or so inmates uh, who work on the newspaper, do, do they get any pay at all? You know, what? the prison jobs <laughs> sometimes get very tiny amount of pay. Yes, and that's a big understatement. They kind of work their way up to 75 cents an hour. And what about the union? The Prison Workers Union is so powerful in California that it has constantly supported a bigger and bigger budget. At one time, the prison budget of California was equivalent to the amount of the University of California system budget, about $9 billion, and that was some years ago. How does the union weigh in here? They haven't weighed in as a union. Some of the correctional officers embrace the paper, some of them not so much. And that touches on one of the real key points. As the governor has said, he wants the San Quentin to not be San Quentin State Prison, but San Quentin Rehabilitation Center. And he's making some real important movement in that direction. So what needs to happen is not just that inmates in prisons need to behave like civilized people. I think to an amazing degree, they already do that. Not all of them, but a lot of them. The problem, or one of them, is that correctional officers often sign on for the job because it's a sort of a military organization, and they want to exert their authority over others. What happened about six months ago is that people from this prison went to Norway and had a look at how a enlightened prison system works. And one of the things that astonished them was that the correctional officers in Norwegian prisons just dress like civilians. They don't have big belts and colored uniforms and hats that distinguish them from the inmates. And so what needs to happen if there's truly a change from prison to rehabilitation center is not only do the inmates who are already involved with a lot of wonderful programs, but there needs to be a change in the mentality of the correctional officers as a whole. Well, you actually have a, an article on the Norwegian prison model being adopted by a prison outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yeah, well, the, the Norwegians are doing it right, and uh, there are a lot of people taking notice. I'm sure our listeners now are really eager to know what is in this 24-page newspaper. Before we get into some of the interesting articles, Steve, we're talking with Steve McNamara, longtime journalist, editor, and recent advisor to the San Quentin News. Before we get into the actual articles, is this newspaper online? Yes, it is. It's online at sanquentinnews.com. And as with most stuff online, it costs you nothing to access it. And the whole paper is there if you'd like to have a look at it. All right. And on the recent issue in January, you have a page one story where the headline is, Judges, Lawyers Get First-Hand Look at Incarceration by Timothy Hicks, a staff writer. What was that about? Well, that's an interesting story. My wife and I have six kids, and one of them, back about eh, a little over 10 years ago, was an assistant DA in San Francisco and ran their neighborhood court program. And she said to me one day, her name is Marissa Rodriguez, and she said, hey, why do you spend so much time in San Quentin? And I said, well, come have a look. 
So she came in to the media center to a meeting and was astonished at how smart and enlightened this group of men was. And she said, when we left the prison, I got to show this to the boss, which she did. The boss at the time was George Gascon, who was the district attorney of San Francisco, now the district attorney of Los Angeles. And George came in and he too said, this is astonishing. These guys are really on the ball. And another wonderful inmate who died in a car crash after his parole, named Arnulfo Garcia, he and I began to work on something called the San Quentin News Forum. And it works this way. We get about 40 inmates, 40 people from outside, cops, prosecutors, district attorneys, people who are in the system, but haven't had a very positive look at it in some cases. And we have meetings called the San Quentin News Forum. And uh, it's a system whereby we spend a morning at the prison and there's a meeting of everybody in a big room. And then they break, we break into uh, smaller groups of eight or 10 and talk for an hour and a half, two hours, and then reassemble in the big, a big group. And the people there, participants, often cover three things. What in their lives got them to where they are, being a cop or being an inmate? What have they learned during this session? And then third, how do they propose to carry what they've learned on as they move forward in life? And I guess one of the high points was the district attorneys of the world, well, of the United States have an organization and it has conventions. And it was having a convention in San Francisco about four or five years ago. And George Gascon, then still the district attorney, said, okay, you guys, first thing we're going to do is go to San Quentin prison. And they said, what? We thought we were going to hang around and chat and have a nice dinner. And they did come and they did participate. There were about 60 of them and a busload of the district attorneys from throughout the United States, New York, Chicago, Baltimore, the works. And I later learned from my daughter that the district attorneys from out the country who had resisted coming to, they thought, Jesus, San Francisco is a wonderful party town. Why am I going to a prison? They spent much of their three-day convention talking about what had happened to them when they went to one of these San Quentin news forums. So that's been a very big step in the right direction. Well, years ago, starting, I think, in Nevada, some judges would go and visit prisons to get a look at the end product of their sentencing. And that's still going on for San Quentin. You have judges, not just uh, district attorneys, right? Correct. There are judges, there are cops, there are prosecutors, there are defense attorneys. And the reason it's a sort of a wonderful and, and enlightening step is this. Most people in the criminal justice system think that it goes this way. Somebody breaks into a house and then they get caught and they go before a judge and they get sentenced and they go, they disappear. And as far as many, many people in the criminal justice system are concerned, that's the end of it. These people have disappeared. We don't need to worry about them anymore. But as everybody should know, 80, 90% of them will be back on the streets. 
And, you know, you say, well, they're not coming to my neighborhood. No, but they may come to your gas station. They may come to your supermarket. So do you want these guys, and they're mostly guys, to have the same sort of attitude about life as they did when they went into prison? If not, hey, you know, here's a chance maybe to move things in a better direction. You have an article in one of the issues of San Quentin News titled, Four States End Forcible Prison Labor. Give us the scene on that subject. Well, I'm not the right guy to talk because there isn't any here. San Quentin is the prison within the state of California that every inmate hopes to get to. And the reason they do is because San Quentin has about 70 or 80 programs ranging all the way from Alcoholics Anonymous to Shakespeare Productions. And the newspaper is another one of them. These programs are taught and supported by up to 3,000 volunteers who come in. Now you say, well, what's the good part about that? Every inmate hopes to get out. And the way you get out is you go before a parole board. And the parole board asks you, well, what have you been doing since you got in here? And if you've just been playing checkers, their chances of getting out are not very good. If, however, you've been participating in a bunch of self-help programs, that enhances your chances a lot. And as someone mentioned in the introduction, the percentage of San Quentin News staff members who've been paroled who have come back to any prison is zero. So clearly, we have a program that's doing a good job. You know, leafing through the San Quentin News, they have an interesting array of articles. Uh, one says, midterm election results suggest support for criminal justice reforms. Another one says, a day of healing. San Quentin News hosts violence prevention symposium. You have crossword puzzles, and you have a lot of space devoted to the sports. Now, are there actually inter-prison soccer team contests between prisons, or all these sports are located and played in one prison at a time? Well, the latter is mostly the case. No, prisoners don't travel into the, from other prisons don't come, but lots of outsiders come. And I guess the most impressive example is members of the Warriors basketball team come into the prison and play a game or two a year. And they are fiercely fought basketball games, and often the prison team wins. Now, this is not <laughs> Steph Curry <laughs> may come in, but he won't be playing. But there will be members of the uh, Warriors operation who will indeed be on the team. But it's mostly groups of other people who are interested either in track or, you know, there's a marathon that's run into San Quentin News. You think, well, how in the hell can they run a marathon 26 miles in a prison? You can if you go around and around and around the athletic field. And indeed, one or two of the recent parolees, uh, well, no, somebody who just got out, finished their sentence, ran the Boston Marathon. Well, you know, you have some fascinating features, Steve. One I just caught my attention, Hawaiian Youth Corrections eliminates imprisonment of girls. Shift in policy and practice focuses on girls' history of trauma. Then you have another one, California prison's role in aviation history. Planes, dirigibles, mechanics are all part of the Correction Department of California history. 
do any of these articles get picked up by the mainstream or progressive press around the country? Do you ever have uh, television crews coming to interview some of the editors and reporters? Well, the latter is yes. We do have a lot of sort of famous media people who come through. One of the things, though, that happens is that the inmates who start out not having a clue as to how you write anything more than a letter to your mother, they become really good writers. And they find they don't get paid much writing for the San Quentin News, but a lot of them write stories that wind up in the Washington Post or the Atlantic Magazine or a place like that. So there is that exchange of news that comes from San Quentin, but it's not stories that we run get picked up, but the writers that we develop find themselves able to get jobs as freelancers for outside publications. Well, just to increase the variety of articles conveyed to our listeners, Steve, you have you have an article, Canine Rehabilitation Programs Prove Successful. And another one on the same page of the April issue, Wild Horses, Prison Farm Employees Gentling Method to Reshape Horses, Humans. What are those about? Well, there are not a lot of wild horses that come in San Quentin. I think they're probably talking about programs in other prisons that deal with wild horses. But there are, as I said, there are perhaps 70 or more different programs going on in San Quentin. And in fact, if you talk to an inmate in San Quentin, and I suppose other places, to program is a verb. And when you get to prison, if you want to get out for you know too long, you program. And it means what you do is you take yourself into a variety of programs that draw out your better qualities. You also have an article called Basic Act Takes Aim at Canteen Price Gouging, SB 474, a bill California Senator Josh Becker hopes to eliminate excessive markups on commissary items. You mean consumer gouging yes. occurs at San Quentin? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it occurs at prisons throughout the United States and perhaps the world. Yes, the prison system will contract with some provider who will, there's a catalog, and you can get sneakers and you can get all kinds of stuff through these catalogs, food, whatever not perishable food, but food. And the company that has the concession to provide these things, as it's been traditional that they really screw the inmates with excessive prices. And so now some of the inmates are standing up on their hind legs and saying, come on, you shouldn't charge this much money for a sack of popcorn or whatever. That's ridiculous. And they're making some, they're making some progress. There are two articles that I just want you to summarize briefly. One is called Second Chance Month Highlights the Power of Personal Transformation. And the other is Proposed Amendment in Sacramento would restore voting rights to incarcerated people, people who are still in jail. Well, I think what they're hoping is that things will move in the right direction in the ways you just imagined. There is a good deal of coverage of what's going on politically within the state of California and the prison system. I should mention the fact that the paper is supported financially from the outside. 
people might say, well, are, is it censored? Not in the sense most people would say censored. The public relations office at San Quentin, which is has been led by some really enlightened, wonderful people, has a look at the paper. But mostly what they're looking for is mistakes that in reporting on events that have taken place within the prison bureaucracy. I mean, if somebody's got it all wrong, they'll say, you know, I think you guys ought to look at this again. That's not exactly the way it happened. But there is no real censorship in the sense that there's some editor with a red pencil who's going through the paper and crossing things out. That's not really allowed. Like, the founding statement from Warden Bob Ayers was, this is not the warden's newsletter. And so that's occasionally there'll be somebody in prison headquarters in Sacramento who will want to sort of exert some authority, but we'll fight back. Indeed, some years ago, I got on the phone with the people in Sacramento and told them, you know, you got to remember what we are. We're independent. And they kind of gulped hard and said, yeah, I, I guess that's really the way we should be viewing this. Well, there you are, listeners. The U.S. has the highest percentage of people in jail per capita of any country in the world, way ahead of various dictatorships. And I think Steve has provided you with a broader view of what's going on in some of the more enlightened prisons. And you can draw your own conclusions where you live and reside in terms of the prison conditions in your state. Anything else you want to say, by the way, that we didn't cover? Well, I do think that while the prison system in America is horrible, taken as a whole, I think that in various places, in San Quentin being one, California being one, there's movement in a good direction. And in the past years, there's been a lot of backsliding, but I don't think that's how you would characterize the situation these days. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. Steve, this has been very engrossing. Thank you for sharing your experience here. Can you tell our listeners once again how they can access the San Quentin News on the Internet? And what if they want a print copy? Is there a subscription by outsiders? Yes, yes. Easily answered. One is if you want to read it online, you go to sanquentinnews.com. San Quentin News is all one word, no dots in there, dot com. And there is the newspaper. And the newspaper will show you how you can subscribe to it. But you basically make a contribution to its livelihood, and you'll get the paper in the mail. On that note, thank you. We've been speaking with Steve McNamara, a longtime advisor to the San Quentin News. But over a long career in journalism, as editor, publisher from coast to coast. Thank you very much, Steve, for your lifetime of work, and continue on. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. We've been speaking with Steve McNamara. We will link to the San Quentin News at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, we'll get an update from our food and health watchdog, the Center for Science and the Public Interest. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, September 1, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. The Department of Transportation has fined American Airlines $4.1 million for violating federal law prohibiting tarmac delays 
of three hours or more on domestic flights without providing passengers an opportunity to deplane. The department's investigation found that American kept dozens of flights stuck on the tarmac for long periods of time without letting passengers off. The department is ordering American to pay the largest fine ever issued for tarmac delay violations and cease and desist from violating the law. The fine is part of the department's unprecedented effort to ensure the traveling public is protected, including returning more than $2.5 billion in refunds to travelers. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Hannah Feldman, along with David Feldman and Ralph. What has the Center for Science and the Public Interest been up to? David? Dr. Peter Lurie is president and executive director of the Center for Science and the Public Interest. Dr. Lurie previously worked with the Food and Drug Administration and Public Citizens Health Research Group, where he co-authored their Worst Pills, Best Pills Consumer Guide to Medications. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Dr. Peter Lurie. Thank you for having me. Yes, welcome, Peter. Well, we go back a long way. The Center for Science and the Public Interest was started by people who worked for a short time at our own center, and it was a wonderful spinoff. Give us an idea of the size of the center, how many staff, its budget. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, you're absolutely right, Ralph, that in you know, many ways this began with you, as did many other groups, of course. And our executive director at the time, or at the beginning, who worked with you was Mike Jacobson. He and a couple of others formed the group back in 1971, so we're over 50 years old now. We've been able to expand, actually, in recent years, since I took over as the second executive director of CSPI, which was six years ago now. We now have about 65 employees, which is about 50% bigger than when I came along. We have an $18 million budget. We're active in most of the different branches of government in various ways that hopefully we'll get to discuss today. But overall, you know, it's a long and I think, you know, a substantial history, which goes all the way back to the beginning with you. Well, I've credited the Center for Science and Public Interest with transforming the nutritional habits of perhaps 40 million people. It generated front page news. It was on the evening television news, congressional hearings. Recently, and this has happened to a lot of citizen groups, Peter. The media has not been covering what we're doing. And I'm sure that you're feeling the same sense of being more and more excluded by the national television, radio, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, AP. Are you as concerned about that as I am? And what are you doing about it? Because you keep putting out reports, petitions to the FDA on sodium excesses in our food excess sugar in our food. And you have this wonderful newsletter, which we're going to talk about, one of the best buys in the consumer publishing world called Nutrition Action. It comes out 10 times a year. Give us your sense of your problems with the media here, trying to reach tens of millions of people. Yeah, well, you know, that's certainly true. I'm sure there's not a consumer advocate out there who doesn't feel that they should be better hood. And we're certainly among those. No, it is tough. You're absolutely right. And I think for us, we've tried to compensate in at least a couple of ways. One is to move more into social media. I think we have plenty more to do there, but we've revamped our website numerous times. We try to you know, contact people and, and build bonds with them through those kinds of social media locations like the X Twitter, X and Twitter, or whichever it is. 
and Instagram, Facebook, and the rest. We do continue to put out reports. And one way in which we're a little different than before is we turn out a lot more in the way of peer-reviewed medical articles and nutrition articles than used to be the case. And those have a particular life of their own. Some of them get attention when they come out as actual news. But the nature of the industry now is everything lives forever in a database, PubMed, and those are accessible forever. So we have ongoing influence because those reports don't come and go in the way that newspapers coverage can do. So those are a couple of ways in which we've tried to adapt. But you're absolutely right. It's tough. It's tough as nails. And, you know, when you, you call them up, they sometimes suggest that you have biases as if the industry does not and that those somehow have to be declared. That seems fundamentally unfair. Tell us how people can get Nutrition Action, which is very brightly written, great colorful layouts. I've read it time and time again going back. You had a whole issue on chemical additives once. You name names. There's nothing vague. You name company names. You name names of the additives. You name all kinds of names of good food and what different kinds of food can do to your health. You focus on children's diets. How can people get nutrition action? It's still in print, not just online. Hundreds of thousands of people subscribe to it in print. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there was a time where we had 900,000 subscribers, and it's, you know, gone down over time for sure, and that's part of the overall declining print and magazine industry. So we're, we're a victim to that like anybody else. The way that you can subscribe, either in print or online, is by going to our website, which is cspinet.org. And there up in the top right-hand corner, you'll find a little button saying Nutrition Action. So cspinet.org, and then hit on Nutrition Action, and that will get you there. You know, we think that it's a complementary work to what we otherwise do. CSPI is sort of two faces, and we're trying to bring them together in our website and the magazine more and more. The one is the educational function, which is what you described and what the magazine does to a large extent. And then the other is all the activism, which I'm sure we'll go on to talk about here, but which is more focused toward government policies and and so forth. So we try to educate consumers on the one hand, on the other hand, try to take care of the environment such that consumers in some way don't even need to be as educated because the environment is different. Well, looking back over 50 years, do you see that these corporations that are marketing directly to kids, very often bypassing, undermining parental authority, terrible foods, drinks, foods, high sugar, high fat, high salt, are they shaping up at all? I mean, you've gone after them. Mike Jacobson's gone after them. Sometimes people on Capitol Hill. How would you compare them today with in the 1970s? You know, I would say that there's been a modest amount of progress. Broadcast industry has a standard that relates to what they'll advertise on television and, you know, at what times of day, what ages, and pushing towards more nutritious food. It's all voluntary, of course, you can imagine. But nonetheless, they have heard the complaints of parents and consumers enough that they've at least adopted a code for what that's worth. It's very hard to get much beyond that, given First Amendment restrictions that we have in this country. So that's been an improvement. We've done quite a bit of work in restaurants for a long time. You know, kids' meals had this customary practice of having a default beverage, and the default beverage was almost always a carbonated sugared one. And we've made quite a bit of progress over the years, I think, in getting that to change. And we've also managed to 
push through legislation in some localities and states that prevent that from being the case. So I do think that companies do understand that there is a drive from consumers for more healthy food. They know that. They may honor that in the breach, but they also see it sometimes as an advertising opportunity. And so they'll push forward, you know, trying to highlight these changes. Sometimes the changes are trivial and they highlight them all the same. Don't get me wrong. But I think if you take the 50-year perspective on things, I think that you know, mild progress has been made in the interim. And you see people looking in the store you know, at the labels in ways that were literally impossible 30 or 40 years ago. So that's very heartening. The next step in labeling, though, for us is something called front of package labeling. And what that tries to do is to distill the essential information on the most important nutrients that people typically overconsume from the side nutrition facts panel and then move it to the front of the package, perhaps ideally from our point of view, with some indication of whether you're too high or perhaps too low in that particular nutrient. And this is the kind of cutting edge of food labeling internationally. Interestingly enough, most of the work has been done in Latin America and they've had very good results in most of the countries that have adopted this front of package approach there have been decreases in sodium consumption, decreases in added sugar consumption. And in Chile, at least, even more encouragingly, there's been reformulation of products to take out added sugars, because otherwise they're going to wind up with a sign saying that added sugars are too high. So the companies are reformulating. And in many ways, that's the kind of ultimate secret here is not to have shoppers in this position where they have to use you know, the nutrition facts label to shop among the variety of choices that any supermarket has, but rather to change you know, the environment to the point that the incentives get the companies to uh, reformulate. And then when you pick the product off the, off the shelf, it's more likely to be a healthy one. So we filed a petition with FDA about a year ago now, and they're conducting research on, on this and gathering information on the science related to it. But we think that that's a real opportunity for change. Well, I hope you also focused on the print being large enough for people to read it. Because one of the ways companies get away with the labeling requirements, they make the print so small that many people can't even read it. Or you put it up against the background such that you you know you can't tell the print from the background anymore. It's just literally legible. But these are these yes. are standard tricks, as you can imagine. Yes, that too. Well, Mike Jacobson wrote a book recently called The Salt Wars, and he derived from studies that over 100,000 people in this country are dying because of excessive consumption of salt in their diet. You have a salt petition. You call it a sodium petition for the Federal Food and Drug Administration. You also have an added sugars petition before the Food and Drug Administration. Give us an appraisal of this regulatory agency that you worked for once and whether it's being subjected to adequate oversight and budgeting and staffing in the food regulatory area by the Congress. Give us a read. Yeah, yeah. so uh, we can certainly return to those particular efforts later on if you want. But, you know, I think that most people, including in all likelihood the current commissioner, understand that the food program within FDA has been, you know, sort of poor stepchild of, of the agency. People have focused more on drugs, they've focused, you know, more on medical devices, vaccines, even more recently tobacco. And so food has been relatively neglected. And I think that we've at times paid the price for that. It usually, as you know, probably better than anybody, it takes a crisis to make things change. 
And the recent crisis in FDA's food world was the infant formula disaster from a couple of years ago, where it turned out that you know there was contaminated product. The company actually knew about it. They destroyed the product rather than telling the FDA. Eventually, you know, more product with similar contamination cropped up, and that resulted in a massive recall, which was superimposed on the pandemic. And the next thing, we had empty shelves and parents who were only feeding their children with infant formula without adequate access to that very product. So that has forced a reconsideration of food at FDA, long overdue, I would say. The agency put in for a very large increase in funding for that part of the FDA program, but it's not looking especially promising at the moment. The House has struck the the increase in funding. So we'll see what can be done on the Senate side, but it's not looking especially good. The agency also elevated the food function within FDA to a higher level, technically speaking, than, you know, drugs or tobacco at this point. So I think that the message as a result of this crisis has gotten through, but, you know, it's really after decades of of relative neglect. Well, how do you characterize the food industry lobbying in Congress? Before the Republicans took control of the House, there was not much going on there It's quite surprising because there's so many issues that grab people back home, which are their constituents. School lunch nutrition standards, for example, being some, and as well as the usual lack of teeth in the meat and poultry inspection laws, the fish inspection laws. We worked on a lot of these bills in the late 60s and early 70s, and the food companies battled to make sure that the penalties were very modest, and the capability of even pursuing criminal prosecution was almost non-existent. What's the scene in Congress here, and who are some of the champions that people should get in touch with? Yeah, so listen, the Congress is the way, you know, it, it sort of always is, right? There's always a background of significant lobbying. And in the food area, not only might there be involvement in particular bills, but then there's this kind of micro-involvement in remarkably small aspects of regulation. So there are riders that relate to whether FDA can work on sodium restriction. There's a rider related to potatoes in school in school lunches. The rider, you know, they attempt to mess with whether it should be full or low-fat milk that's being served to kids in schools. I mean, these are the kinds of things that somehow Congress has taken upon itself to get to get its fingers in. It's just, you know, really, really preposterous. I mean, those things should be left to to regulatory agencies. But there's no issue too trivial for the industry to show up in a, you know, obviously self-interested way and and advocate on on their own behalf. There are some signs of hope again, though. Interestingly enough, the pandemic provided some of them. For example, one of the things that was done was creation of a universal school meals plan for the duration of the pandemic. And also to make it easier for people to pick up the school meals during the summer. So all of that were things that were sort of reforms that were ushered in during the pandemic. Now, of course, the minute the pandemic so-called goes away, then immediately that stuff gets retrenched. And so despite what I I think were programs that were very, very popular, those have now disappeared. And so we've had to turn instead to the states to try to get them to implement universal school meals, which we believe in. And Maine and California have actually done that. A number of other states are trying to do that. But really, all of this should come from the federal level. 
and the Republicans in Congress mostly are, you know, very often uh, opposed to those kinds of things as a, you know, claim of government overreach. So, you know, but we we certainly have our, our friends and colleagues in the Congress, Representative DeLauro from Connecticut, probably more than anyone, I would say, has been around for a very long time. We have often worked very productively with Senators Durbin and Blumenthal. And the sort of rising star in this area has been Senator Booker, who has a very strong personal story with respect to nutrition and is very engaged in these issues as well. So there are people who are involved, but unquestionably, you know, from certainly from a financial point of view, the advocacy side is hopelessly outgunned by the industry. And the only real hope for winning is a well-made, well-presented argument and having the science on our side, which we do. Don't you think that groups like yours should be more forceful in throwing these companies against the wall of the criminal behavior that they are they have engaged in? And do you intend to expand your litigation capacity to get some of these issues in the courts that are ignored by the corporate indentured members of Congress? Well, you know, look, you can avail yourself only of the laws that, that exist, right? And as you point out, they largely don't. So, you know, that's that's tough. Now, we do have a litigation department at CSPI. Historically, what is done is engaged in tort litigation, class action cases, almost all around some kind of mislabeling, right? So where a company makes a claim that, you know, isn't justified or they label or put text on their or pictures on their product in such a way that for example, suggest that there's a you know boatload of fruit in there when there's actually concentrated juice extract or something, right? That's a kind of common thing. And one can win judgments against companies in certain instances under those circumstances. And we've had some luck in the in the whole grain area in particular, and we've even made some useful law. What we've tended to do though in recent years, after I consulted with a number of people who used to work for you, Ralph, is to move a little bit more away from that kind of work, although we do still do it, and more in the direction of administrative procedure type cases. So procedural questions sometimes, sometimes substantive ones, but more that relate to what government policies are and our ability to challenge those. So the one where I told you we got the school meal provisions from the Trump administration of a turn is a really good example of that. We've got something called the Sunset Act or provision, whatever it was, overturned. I think you may remember that was something put in place by HHS during the Trump administration that would literally have required every single regulation within HHS to be revisited and re-justified every five years which given the fact that there are about 17,000 of those rules, like just completely and utterly impossible and basically a guarantee that in the absence of renewal, the rule would simply disappear. And these would have been rules that were related to food, but rules that related to drugs that, you know, related to the Center for Medicaid, all these things would have just literally evaporated for failure to renew them using a substantive and very time-consuming process every five years. Impossible. So we've done that kind of work more recently, Ralph, and you know, using the Free Information Act a bit more, those kinds of things. And we're thinking that in, in the long term, that's probably the more effective approach. It's amazing the cruel contrast in this country. As you say in one of your dispatches, in the U.S., an estimated 30 to 40 percent of the food supply ends up as waste. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, 
More than 10% of U.S. households were food insecure at some point in 2020. There are millions of kids who go to bed hungry at night in the U.S., and yet the food is piled up and much of it goes into waste, which is an environmental problem as well. Well, I want to ask you about imports. There was some period in the past where the dollar value of food imports into the greatest food producer in the history of the world, the U.S., equaled or slightly surpassed the dollar value of domestic food production. How are you dealing with health and safety hazards and deceptive marketing relating to the huge importing of food in this country? Well, it's, you know, it's a massive problem, obviously, and you know, underlying it all is a problem that FDA in particular, because there's less importation of, you know, actual animals, right? It's, it tends to be, you know, finished food products or ingredients. So most of those are subject to FDA, not USDA regulation. You know, they're inspecting, who knows, one, 2% of all products that come across the border. That's of all products, right? That means all foods, all drug, all tobacco, all everything. And there's just, you know, that's the underlying problem. So you're never even close to being able to, in a meaningful way, inspect any FDA-regulated product that it comes across the border. And in order to do so, you'd have to have a vast increase in resources, which I'm not aware anybody is seriously contemplating at this point, even though they should. So, yeah, no, you know, you're right. And in those ways, all kinds of things can get into the get into the U.S. marketplace that, you know, dietary supplements can be a special problem in that area because some of them are made in facilities that, you know, may not be able to exclude heavy metals. And so certain categories of supplements have been shown fairly reliably to have lead or occasionally mercury within them. So yeah, no, you're right. It's 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 just a, a huge problem, but in some ways, even bigger than food. That's the unfortunate fact. Well, the imports of food from China have been shown to be contaminated, contaminated peanut butter, for example, in part because they grow food next to polluted environments, and whether it's air or, or water pollution. And how confident are you that that organic label, that USDA organic label, is actually reflected in the food that the label is attached to, first in the U.S. and then abroad? The organic label, in an ironic way, is one of the more dependable parts of food labels in, in this country, by which I mean other things that you customarily see, like healthy, natural, phrases like that, those go without definition. Organic at least has a definition, right? You can go to the USDA's website and find it, and it speaks about GMOs, and it speaks about pesticides and so forth and so on. And so at least in principle, there's a mechanism for enforcing those requirements. I'm, I'm not here to say that they've been well enforced because I simply don't know. I'm just here to say that that is the one that is actually in you know the Code of Federal Regulations, right? It's really there and can be enforced. The healthy and natural stuff is you know a wholly different thing. FDA is trying to define healthy now, and we've submitted comments on their proposal, which actually looks okay. It's a voluntary approach, though, so that's you know a huge problem in and of itself. But those kinds of claims, I have zero confidence in because there's just no way to regulate them unless they make a claim so outlandish that somebody brings a class action lawsuit against them, which might get things changed. You know, and I do want to emphasize one thing. 
CSPI is one of the few groups remaining that doesn't take money from corporations at all. We don't take advertising and nutrition action. We take money from the government only in as much as it supports sort of limited research efforts and that it comes from the NIH as opposed to the agencies that we lobby. So, you know, we do very much hold dear to Mike's original vision of here, of this and some of the other groups that were formed under your aegis that still stand by that approach to things. You know, it makes it hard, I will just say, you know, not having advertising certainly makes life a bit more difficult than it would be. But from our point of view, that's absolutely critical if we're ever going to have credibility and ability to be seen as honest brokers in this space. You know, even though we've had some opportunity to take corporate money over the years, you know, we've turned it down and I plan to continue doing so. Well, we're going to have to conclude. Can you give the contact number people can subscribe to Nutrition Action, which I would strongly recommend they do, and any last point you want to make that we haven't covered? Yeah, well, thank you, Ralph. Yeah, no, I think that the best way to become a subscriber to Nutrition Action would be to go to our website, cspinet.org, and to click on the Nutrition Action button. There you'll see not only information from Nutrition Action itself, but the whole array of activist activities that I've described on this call and any number of opportunities for people to get involved, to sign petitions, to participate with action alerts, to exhort the members of Congress or regulatory agencies to take the actions that we're seeking. So, no, I, I think uh, we've certainly covered a, a lot of stuff. I do want to say that, you know, we have in recent years, we've tried to put more emphasis on the sort of access and hunger and equity issues that relate to the food system, not just the ones so much that we've talked about, but additional ones. And we're reaching out to some of the hunger groups to try to form a stronger movement in, you know, within food. So our work is increasingly informed by those kinds of equity and sometimes racial concerns. And I, I think that that's helped us. It's helped us in terms of bringing new people into the movement both in terms of people who support us on the outside and in terms of the people who have joined us on the inside as, as employees at the CSBI. So, you know, we continue to move with the times and plan to do so for another 50 years. Thank you. It's excellent having you on. I've been talking with Dr. Peter Lurie, President and Executive Director of the Center for Science in the Public Interest, based in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me, and David and Hannah, nice to meet you. We've been speaking with Peter Lurie. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Finally, Ralph, you wanted to respond to a letter from our good friend, Bruce Fine. Listeners, just a quick story on the United States and international treaties. There are so many treaties that the vast majority of nations have ratified, and we as a country have not. But the most remarkable one is about to be described briefly by David. This is a quote from a friend of yours, quote, the United States is the sole nation in the world that has refrained from ratifying the Convention on the Rights of the Child. No U.S. president has even submitted the treaty for Senate ratification. Opposition stems from a belief that the convention interferes with parental rights to raise children. Imagine, listeners, all the countries that we've had very good relations with and what we call the Western democracies, they don't seem to have any problem with this treaty interfering with parental rights to raise children. In our country, we don't have any laws that interfere with rapacious corporations 
trying to raise our children. As written about recently by Harvard psychologist Susan Lynn in her book, Who's Raising Our Kids? Big Tech, Big Business, and Our Children's Lives. Six hours a day, they're separating these kids on these addictive iPhones from their parents, community, and nature, selling them horribly damaging things to their health, mental, and physical. And nobody seems to be worried about that while they're being worried about ensuring no ratification, not even hearings in the Senate, on the Convention on the Rights of the Child. You might want to raise this issue, listeners, with some of your representatives and maybe some of the children's groups in your area. I want to thank our guests again, Steve McNamara and Peter Lurie. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For your podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis and In Case You Haven't Heard. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our production assistant is John Richard. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. I'm associate producer Hannah Feldman. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when our guest will be procrastination expert Piers Steele. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Be a Capitol Hill citizen. Go to CapitalCitizen.com. Get a copy of the latest issue print only, and roll up your sleeves to recover Congress. Change the country that way. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. First, Steve McNamara tells Ralph more about California prisons, the rehabilitative programs at San Quentin, and the San Quentin residents who staff the San Quentin News. Let's take a look at the composition of the inmates. How many inmates are at San Quentin? And how would you break it down, male, female, minorities? And are there any corporate crooks at San Quentin? <laughs> no, I don't think stolen? The corp- no, good question. I don't think they're, the corporate crooks are mostly federal, and they wind up there. No, there are no females. There are two female prisons in California, but they don't mix them up, boys and girls. The nature of it, see, San Quentin used to, used to have the only death row in California. But Governor Newsom, who is really quite enlightened in this area, has succeeded in moving them all out of San Quentin and sort of distributing them to one of the two or the other, well, they only go to one prison, to a prison in the system. So San Quentin has about now about 3,000, 3,500 inmates, none of them on death row. Yeah, that's the number. No women, no death row. How about minorities? Oh, yeah. Well, let me back up one little bit. Prisons in California are ranked according to how desperate and terrible the inmates mostly are. Level one prisons are mostly fire camps. So, you know, you could walk away if you were stupid from one of those. And that goes up to level four. Level five was death row. San Quentin's level two. So that means it's mostly inmates who are either on their way out to be paroled or are determined to be not a lot of trouble. 
but you, what was the question you just asked me? Sorry to wander. You know, most of the prisons in our country have a disproportionate number of African Americans and Hispanics. What's the situation with San Quentin? And that's because, you know, they don't have effective access to lawyers often. The criminal injustice system is very discriminatory. Just uh, equal violations by teenagers of drug laws, African-American youths are far higher probability of being jailed. We know all that. But what's the situation at San Quentin in terms of distribution? San Quentin as a whole, I'd say probably is about maybe 15% African-American, but <laughs> it's, the, it's about 80% of the staff of the San Quentin News. We have taken within the past few years of having a couple of three pages that are in Spanish. We have a quarterly magazine called Wall City, and it is in English on maybe, say, three of the issues a year, and one issue is all Spanish. I would say close to 40% of the inmates in the prison are Latinos, Spanish. The percentage of the inmates and percentage of the members of the San Quentin News staff that are white is way down there in 10 or 20%. Any widespread progress there on the long distance or on what inmates are charged when they pick up the phone to call their family or friends? The charges have been horrendous, and the media has exposed this again and again over the last few decades. What's the situation there? I'm afraid I'm a little short on information here. I think that fairly recently, within the past year or so, there's been a state legislation that's either dramatically reduced or eliminated the charges for phone calls. Well, you know, the stories that have come to the forefront in the last few months from Texas, Florida, the conditions are horrendous. You know, 100-degree heat, no air conditioning, prisoners fainting, even worse, medical results. There's just a lot of brutish conditions here, and they are often to be disproportionately in the South. Do you have any comments on that? Well, as far as the, the weather goes, it's, you know, this is, the, this is the San Francisco Bay Area. The weather's pretty good all the time. So there's not any cases really of the kind of brutish heat that you get in some prisons in the South. That said, I have to come back to the fact this is the oldest prison in California, and it's pretty decrepit, and the air circulation is not good. So if you're looking for a modern prison with good air circulation, you don't want to look to San Quentin. Indeed. There's been some grumbling or pointed questioning. Governor Newsom has said, said back last April, that he's going to make uh, major changes ahead for San Quentin. And it's, some of the inmates say, well, you know, okay, here's how you could start. You could end double selling. The cells in the prison are by and large designed, if you can call it that, for one inmate, but they have two. And so it's a pretty tight squeeze for most of the inmates as far as living conditions go. There's some they have taken over in this move to make this the rehabilitation center. They've taken over a part of the prison that was devoted to making furniture. And they're going to create a better designed and executed space. It's also 
the place right now where they have the coding classes. And that's something pretty amazing because, you know, if you work in the prison, you're getting paid 75 cents an hour if you're lucky. But if you get yourself into with this coding class, you're learning computer coding. And it is a little organization which farms out small jobs of coding to outside organizations. And if you learn to be a good coder, when you get out of prison, you're not making 75 cents an hour, you're making $100,000 a year. So needless to say, that's a very popular program to get yourself into. Give us a sense of the offenses that brought the people to San Quentin. Give us a range of criminal offenses. Well, okay, at the bottom, there's a guy named Boots who's been the layout person, really good layout person, taught himself, and he's really great. I got him some books, but man, he, he's really been putting out a great-looking newspaper. He's leaving. He served his sentence. His problem was two robberies. Okay, at the other end, there are a lot of people in here who were in for murder. So it's not overtime parking that you'll find as the offense that has got these guys into San Quentin. It's generally something pretty serious like murder and first or second degree murder. Now you say, whoa, you mean these guys are putting out this newspaper? Yes, they are. They don't start doing it the day they arrive in prison. Sometimes they'll be at one of the other 34 prisons in the state for a while. But if they clean up their act at the other prisons, they can get transferred to San Quentin. That's kind of like going to graduate school, in a sense. It's your chances of getting out are way enhanced if you participate in a lot of programs. San Quentin has a lot of programs, and the chances of parole are excellent if you get here and, and you know, watch your P's and Q's. Do you have a prison library where some inmates are researching the law books because they think they were subjected to prosecutorial misconduct of oh, one yeah, kind well, all, or another? I think all prisons have a prison library. How good it is, I don't know. But I think it's good enough so that people or inmates and often inmates engage themselves a pro bono outside lawyer who helps them along towards getting out. You also have uh, articles on uh, California universities, campuses offering programs for formerly incarcerated students. That's the transition part of the story. You have an article called Collateral Consequences Derail Already Fragile Prison Education college inside. Describe that. Well, one of the more remarkable things about San Quentin is that it has a two-year accredited college, state college inside called Mount Tamalpais College. And it began about 15 years ago as a sort of a adjunct to the courses that are traditional within colleges. But a pretty remarkable woman named Jody Lewin has steered it into becoming accredited by all the proper organizations. And it's a college. And you can go there, get the credits you would need to when you got out of San Quentin or out of Mount Tamalpais College, you could use those to transfer yourself into a four-year college. And a number of inmates have done that. They've moved on to uh, University of California at Berkeley. And you have a, 
a, a two-page spread with a lot of pictures called Graduation Season Comes Back Around at San Quentin. California Reentry Institute holds first graduation ceremony since 2020. What do you have to do to get at that graduation ceremony? Well, there are many programs that seek to elevate the men who are participating. And once they put in their year, or some cases two, to the curriculum, then there'll be a graduation. And it's a with captioned gowns and guest speakers, and it's a pretty impressive event. Next up, Hannah and David asked Steve McNamara some follow-up questions. Hannah, do you have a comment or question? You said that the newspaper was revived about 15 years ago. When was it originally published? When did it shut down? And if it's independently funded, what cause did the prison give to shutting it down? Are there any trends at play? Can you tell that story? Well, that's a great, great question, really, because back in the 70s or 80s, there were quite a lot of prison newspapers around the country. And this was a kind of a a period during which there was a lot of upset about the the, you know the Black Panther era, and the prison newspaper, called the San Quentin News, embraced a lot of the demands and thoughts and programs of the Black Panther type people. They were not all Black Panthers; some of a lot of them were Latino, but. In one case, and I don't think it was the San Quentin paper, what happened was a prison newspaper was censored or made to change things. And that inmate found himself a good lawyer and took the case to a federal court. And there was a decision that said that inmates have the same First Amendment rights as free people do. And Except in the cases of, well, two cases. One was security. If, if you had an article telling somebody how to climb a wall, that was wrong, and, and the warden could come down on it. Also, if the warden said, we've run out of money for your newspaper, so we're going to shut it down for either of those reasons. And the result of this was prison newspapers throughout the country disappeared because the warden said, look, We've got a loophole here. We can get rid of these bastards. And they did. So by now, there has been a gradual revival of the prison newspaper system throughout the country. But in our case, rather than go and beg some money from the prison system, why we became independently financed. David? One of the chief, almost sacred functions of a local newspaper is to nurture community. For example, you know, you and Ralph share a lifetime bond, having attended the same college. You've spread out over the years, but the shared experience creates a sense of community. And when I think of prison, I imagine there's no sense of community, no pride in the community. Just do your time. And if you're lucky, get out. So how important a role does community play in the editorial decisions made at the San Quentin News? Uh, I guess I don't uh, can't get my arms quite around this. I know that when staff members parole, they continue to hang out with each other. And, you know, they have barbecues in Golden Gate Park and whatnot. So it is a a kind of a lifetime interest that they develop while they're here. 
If that's what you mean by community, that's the answer to it. As to the other inmates who are in the prison, when they get here, they hope to get on the staff of the newspaper. And we, indeed, we have a beginner's program. It's called the San Quentin Newspaper Guild. And it meets on Fridays. And the idea is, okay, if all you know how to do is write a letter to your mother, here's how you can develop skills that will get you onto the staff of the paper. They love that because the paper goes to their mother and who sees that they have done something to clean up their act. So to that sense, there is a great push for community. Ralph and Peter Lurie have a lot to discuss, from school lunches to salmonella, from adulterated supplements to advocacy events. Here's the rest of their conversation. Well, you know, over 10 years ago, George McGovern, former senator from South Dakota and the father of nutritional public hearings in the Congress, wrote a little book. And the book had one purpose, and it was to say, we can and need to be able to provide a free lunch to any child in the world who needs one. And we haven't even done that apart from the pandemic programs. We haven't even done that in the United States. And there's wrangling over what kind of surplus food is going to be put into free lunches. And the the companies want to unload some of this food into the free lunch program. How nutritious are USDA standards for free lunches and what more needs to be done, not only to give every child a free lunch who needs one and can't afford it, but also to get them weaned off of the deliberate promotional strategy of food processing companies, high fat, high sugar, high salt diets, which have led to an overweight epidemic unparalleled in U.S. history among these children. Yep. So, you know, the history here, probably one way of looking at the history is going back to 2010 and the passage of something called the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act at the time of the Affordable Care Act. And that set USDA the target of creating nutritional standards for school meals that were consistent with the government's advice to Americans on what to consume, which are called the Dietary Guidelines for Americans, which come out every five years, the DGAs, they're called. So they're supposed to be aligning the requirements with those recommended by the DGAs. So the Obama people took a while, mind you, but they did put out a set of targets. They were set up as sort of tier one, two, and three to take place over an extended period of time to give industry and schools time to get used to the whole thing. But they got, you know, tier one out there. They were relatively weak, but, you know, at least it was on the right path. Of course, it goes without saying that the moment the Trump people came in, they reversed those. They did away with tier three entirely, turned back the clock on tier two, et cetera. And so we actually sued them at a certain point and won a case arguing that there had been procedural irregularities. And so their undoing of the proposals from the Obama people was undone. Now the Biden people have to go in and create their own standards. And so they just have produced their own set of standards. We're mostly encouraged by them. Most of them are consistent with the DGAs, not the sodium one. That one still lags you know, well behind. But what is new and exciting about the latest proposal from a year or so ago is that it has an added sugar standard. And, and this is quite interesting because 
it's interesting to see the way this works its way through government. So the added sugars was, you know, is this a real thing was kind of a question. Then the DGAs say that, you know, the added sugars are important. Then the FDA changes the nutrition facts label often being petitioned by CSPI and adds an added sugars line. Now the public becomes interested in added sugars and that in turn puts pressure on USDA to do something about added sugars as well. So now for the first time, we're seeing those. So, you know, the general answer to your question is that there have been improvements. There are modeling studies that actually predict significant decreases in adult obesity as a result of changes in childhood obesity over time as a result of these of these more healthy school meals. People who run the school meals are surprisingly opposed to many of these changes. They argue that if you change the food such that there's, say, less sodium or less saturated fat, that the kids will just throw it all away. In fact, empirical evidence shows the opposite. If anything, as the foods have improved, the kids have been more willing to consume them. So if anything, plate waste has gone down. But that's the kind of argument that we're up against. Again, you know, very, very slow. Not what anybody had in mind back in 2010 in terms of the pace of improvement. But, you know, the direction of history is moving in, in the right way. Well, taking a long look backward, Peter, we're talking with Dr. Peter Lurie, who's the president and executive director of the Center for Science and the Public Interest based in Washington, D.C., celebrating uh, their 52nd anniversary. Taking a look backward, you can't help but sense the horror of what these food processing companies and their advertisers have done to the children of America. They know the damage they've done. In order to cater to the taste of the kids, to get them to consume quantitatively more of the junk food and drink that they're peddling. They have seen the figures on childhood obesity go up, childhood diabetes go up, other ailments that kids should never have at their age. They have seen the result over the decades of shortened lifespan, premature death and illness. And year after year, they keep doing this. And uh, I once had a talk with a friend of mine who achieved a high corporate position. And when I raised all this issue, yeah, he just nodded and nodded. And I said, do you feed your kids this stuff? He said, of course not. They know what they're doing. And uh, there have never been any criminal laws to catch up to them. They don't exist. They're criminogenic, I would say, in the way they deliberately seduce these children bypass parents through massive television programs, kiddie programs, especially on weekends. And now through the internet and social media, it's like the Wild West. In one of your long letters to constituents around the country, you have a section on the increasing number of diseases that come from animals and are transferred to humans. Of course, that was raised during the pandemic. Tell us about the need for stronger prevention of zoonotic disease, as you put it in your letter. Yeah, so zoonotic diseases are those that are transmitted from animals to humans. And as you say, a large fraction of diseases are of that kind. The problem that we have is that you know the welfare of the animals is regulated by USDA. And that's what their primary purpose is, well, except for one additional purpose, which is promoting the health of, of the agriculture industry, which is literally part of their mission. But setting that aside, their focus, to the extent it's on the health of anything, is on the health of animals. And the problem is that that doesn't give them the license to work on 
issues and conditions that may be of relevance to the health of humans. And so that's what we have a bill in the Congress called MESDA, which tries to broaden the scope of USDA such that in making regulations, for that matter, making inspections, that they would take into account not just the implications for animal health, but for human health as well. The truth is that, you know, for decades, there have been pretty concerted efforts to reduce the levels of contamination of meat in particular. One thing we've learned in those intervening years is that it's not meat only or dairy products, for example, the way we used to believe. We've learned that very often there can be leafy greens, for example, that are the sources of outbreaks as well. And that's really forced people to look at it differently. But even then, many of those leafy greens are contaminated by the feces of animals that have strayed into the farm. And so even that is a zoonotic disease, you know, to a certain extent. So despite all these efforts, there really has not been a decrease in outbreaks or in levels of foodborne illness. And so we're trying to get USDA to focus on salmonella in particular, which is the leading cause. And the current administration has, in fact, committed to that. They've put out, for now, rather a general framework that explains the way that they're going to approach this. We've suggested that they focus in particular on those strains of salmonella that, you know, associated with greatest burden of human illness. But I expect that over time, the framework will be colored in and we'll learn more about what they plan to do. So um, much, much more work to be done. Some suggestion of an interest in doing more, I think a sincere one, but in the intervening period, a rather disappointing picture as there's not been much of a change in disease rates at all. And there's always new challenges. As you say in one of your dispatches, there is now a move in New York and California to ban the sale of weight loss supplements to minors. And I'm quoting your dispatch. While these products claim to promote healthy weight loss, many are not only ineffective, but they're often laced with dangerous chemicals, including banned laxatives and stimulants, end quote. Look at the way it works. You know, over the years, they would sell these kids regular Coca-Cola. I would get my point across over the years, but I'd ask young people, well, how many of you have drunk a can of Coca-Cola? And all the hands go up. And I say, well, what if I had a can in front of me and I'm preparing Coca-Cola and I'm adding a teaspoon of sugar? Now, tell me when you think I should stop. One, and, you know, very few people would say stop. Two, more people would say stop. Three, more of the youngsters would say stop. The answer is that when they drank that can of Coca-Cola, there were nine teaspoons of sugar in that can. And, of course, that's one way. They increase weights. And along come some of these commercial entrepreneurs and say, hey, you've got 30% of youngsters now are considered seriously overweight. Let's sell them this weight loss supplement. And you're doing something about that, are you not? Sure. Well, you're right. It's some kind of chemical miracle that they're able to get nine teaspoons into a can of Coke. I honestly don't know how it's done. It's kind of a remarkable thing and certainly in nobody's interest but their own. Yeah. And so inevitably, you know, you have one arm of the food industry, you know, you know, helping to create a problem of obesity. And then you have another arm of the food industry, the dietary supplement industry, and they are considered foods that, you know, crops up with a supposed solution to the problem. So 
you know, that works neatly. Those supplements are very unlikely to do much of anything for anybody except for line the pockets of the of the manufacturers. The only time that they have even a prayer of being able to reduce anybody's weight is when they are contaminated with an FDA-approved drug. And mind you, until recently, at least, most of those weren't very good either, and some were toxic. So, but, you know, th th that's what happens. And so th these dietary supplement manufacturers, they, they say they have, what have you, green tea that supposedly reduces weight, no evidence for that. But then there's a so-called contaminant, which it's sort of hard to believe is not intentional, that turns out to be an actual FDA-approved drug. That's flat out illegal. And if the agency learns about that, a supplement that is contaminated with an FDA-approved drug, they will take action against those. I mean, if they learn. Now, the problem is that FDA knows which companies are making dietary supplements because some amendments to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act in 2007 required that, but they don't, believe it or not, know which supplements these companies are making. So somehow FDA's dietary supplement group, which is only a couple of dozen people, policing a $60 billion industry, they somehow are supposed to police a marketplace when they don't even know what's in it. So you can imagine it's almost an impossible task. The staff has you know, not increased commensurate to the growth of the, of the industry. And they're just you know, behind the eight ball all the time. All they can do is find the most egregious offenders like a tainted product and go after those, or those that make an illegal claim, which the companies not infrequently do. And we actually bring a bunch of those to the attention of the agency. And often you can get them to take action against the company for an inappropriate claim. The problem, though, is, you know, these people at that point, having failed to, con you know, to consult a competent lawyer before putting the claim on, now receive a letter from FDA and they get somebody who explains to them that if you change your claim from this thing to that thing, often minor changes in the wording, you now are on the right side of the legal line. So they make some minor change in, in the labeling and now they're good to go. So it, it's it's really a terrible situation in an industry far larger than the FDA can hope to regulate. There have been bills in the Congress, including the most recent one, that would have made at least salutary changes in the dietary supplement law, but even those we couldn't get through. In conclusion, Peter, your illustrious predecessor, Mike Jacobson, new venture is to start a major food museum in the United States with a tremendous outreach to the rest of the world in terms of this educational effort that he is pursuing. I take it that the Center for Science Public Interest is fully backing that expansion once he can raise enough money to build it. Well, that's Mike's new venture. You know, after leaving CSPI, he served us on our board and as obviously as a staff member for many years and he stayed on to help ease the transition for me into into my, my current role so this is what he's working on we certainly are you're happy that he's doing this and we uh, are providing materials that he'll be able to use if he can bring it all to fruition so we'll see how he does do you like the idea of one of his innovations which was an annual food day it was pretty well attended around the country in the 70s, 80s, and then interest started to flag around the country. So he, he stopped doing it. Are you considering some focal event every year that can bring together all the initiatives and caveats that you have accumulated into one educational day with events all over the country? 
Yeah, well, so, you know, that activity preceded the time I was around the wisdom, if that's what it is that I've gathered from, you know, my staff members is, well, just what you said, which is that attendance was declining and most of the remaining staff members, you know, feel that that was not the best way to keep trying to draw attention to to our issues. So, no, we haven't really considered, you know, starting that up again. It's always something to think about, I suppose. But I don't know, you know, given the things that you earlier said about media coverage, you know, I, I guess I have my own skepticism about whether that's the absolute best way for us to spend our resources. Yeah. I'm wondering whether it can be done virtually, which would enormously reduce the expense. And there is a need for a focal point. You remember Earth Day, which still goes on April 22nd. In 1970, there were 15 million participants, and they really helped get through the environmental laws of that period. That's something to think about anyway. Finally, Hannah and David asked Peter Lurie about consumer literacy and Diet Coke. Well, we're running short of time. I want to give uh, Hannah and David a little opportunity to ask you a question or comment. Hannah? Thank you. Yeah, my question is about consumer literacy. Obviously, the goal is that it won't be so difficult for consumers to read the labels and understand what's actually in the food and other products they consume. But what sorts of resources does CSPI have for, let's say, someone considering a vitamin or a supplement? What resources do you have for consumers? I do think that the main thing we've done for consumers in that area, aside from our periodic assessments of them and nutrition action, is to get the nutrition facts label and its various revisions on the label once and for all so that people can see for themselves. But you're right, that information is in its way difficult to understand. I, you know, I've had some minor role in trying to design those labels and it's really hard to do, I've got to say. You know, there's just many, many questions, technical questions that come up about font size and, you know, spacing and, you know, underlining and percentages and, you know, can people understand these things? And it's it is difficult, which is why we think that this front of package would be a simplified way of, you know, really capturing the most important information. And there is information that shows that, you know, people who are less educated, for example, have more difficulty with the nutrition facts label, as you would expect. And so part of our justification for the front of package approach is that it will try to overcome some of those and try and address some of the equity barriers that we think are still presented, even with the current labeling system. David? Is there a consensus yet on what is safer, Diet Coke or regular Coke, sugar versus sugar substitutes? Do they know? Yeah, it's a that's a good question. And it's very much been in the news, you might have noticed, David, recently, because over the summer, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, put out a pronouncement related to aspartame, which is the leading non-nutritive sweetener out there. It is present in, in Diet Coke and Diet Pepsi. And they concluded, uh, we don't really completely agree with this assessment, but they stated that there was, quote, limited evidence of carcinogenicity, cancer-causing ability. We think, you know, there's a category called probable, which we think would have been better suited to this. And some question about why they came to that conclusion instead of the other. That said, so we we distinguish among non-nutritive sweeteners, I guess is the first thing that I would say. David, that that we don't think that they're necessarily all the same. And we think that aspartame is probably one of the worst players. And we think that stevia is one of the better players. 
and in order to know which is in which, you've got to look at the small print on the nutrition facts label, right? So we don't think that they're identical and we distinguish according to science and we recommend some and don't recommend others. That said, however, our stronger message is that the most important thing to do in beverage consumption is to avoid those sugary sweetened beverages. That's your first object. And if you succeed in doing that, your better option is to go to water or unsweetened drinks. But your second best option is to take one of these diet type drinks, ideally one without aspartame. And now it's time for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. Late last week, the National Labor Relations Board issued a decision in the Semex Construction Materials case, establishing a quote-unquote new framework that, quote, when a union requests recognition on the basis that a majority of employees in an appropriate bargaining unit have designated the union as their representative, an employer must either recognize and bargain with the union or promptly file a petition seeking an election, end quote. Crucially, though, this ruling also establishes that, quote, if an employer who seeks an election commits any unfair labor practice that would require setting aside the election, the petition will be dismissed, and rather than rerunning the election, the board will order the employer to recognize and bargain with the union, end quote. This stunning decision is among the most important revisions to labor rules in decades and will apply retroactively. On a hot streak, Bloomberg Law reports that the NLRB also decided last week that Quickway Transportation, quote, must reopen a terminal in Louisville, Kentucky, that the company illegally shut down in 2020 after drivers there formed a union, end quote. This sets a powerful new precedent for recourse against companies that have used the tactic of shutting down locations in order to stave off unionization, most notably Starbucks. The American Prospect reports that in Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp has aggressively courted EV manufacturers using Inflation Reduction Act tax incentives. Yet, Governor Kemp has awarded these, quote, lucrative contracts for building out the factories to non-union construction firms, end quote. These firms also happen to be major donors to Georgia Republicans, including Kemp himself, who formerly owned a non-union construction company. Mondo Weiss has published a new report on the founding of the Institute for Critical Study of Zionism. This institute, quote, aims to support the delinking of the study of Zionism from Jewish studies and to reclaim academia and public discourse for the study of Zionism as a political, ideological, and racial and gendered knowledge subject, intersecting with Palestine and decolonial studies, critical terrorism studies, settler colonial studies, and related scholarship and activism. NBC News reports that a group of nearly 90 Democratic members of Congress sent a letter to President Biden last week calling on him to take further action to address the student debt crisis. These members ended the letter by writing, quote, We urge you to continually find ways to use your authority to bring down student debt, address the rising cost of college, and make post-secondary education affordable for all students who choose that path. Borrowers have already waited nearly a year for the relief you announced in August 2022, and critics of your plan to help 43 million Americans are likely to renew their attacks with regard to your rulemaking announcement. We urge you to reject their bad faith partisan attempts to delay relief and carry out your efforts to help borrowers as quickly as possible. According to the Baltimore Banner, 
Charm City may soon be facing its own version of the Cop City fight. Per the report, Baltimore officials are planning to construct a quote-unquote tactical village, which will be used to train police. There are some differences between the projects, however. Whereas Atlanta's Cop City is slated to be built upon a raised section of forest, Baltimore's tactical village is proposed to be built on the campus of Coppin State University, a historically black institution. Another key difference, while Cop City is estimated to cost $90 million, the tactical village is estimated at a whopping $330 million. The city has proposed a new, quote, public safety income tax to fund the project. The Washington Post has published a profile of Sarah Feinberg, an employee at the defense contractor Booz Allen Hamilton, who blew the whistle on rampant overbilling of the government by the company. In July, Booz Allen agreed to pay $377 million to settle the case. Perhaps the most shocking portion of her complaint was when, quote, a senior manager called federal auditors too stupid to notice overcharging. WTOP reports the fast casual change Chipotle has agreed to pay over $300,000 in a settlement with the District of Columbia regarding the company's alleged violations of child labor law. D.C. Attorney General Brian Schwab's office identified more than 800 alleged violations in the district, including, quote, requiring minors to work past 10 p.m., working more than eight hours a day, working more than six consecutive days, or working more than 48 hours in one work week, end quote. The settlement does not require Chipotle to admit wrongdoing. Finally, AP reports that, during an address to Jesuits in Lisbon, Pope Francis, quote, said backward U.S. conservatives have replaced faith with ideology, end quote. So remember, listeners, now when you say conservatives have replaced faith with ideology, you can cite the Pope. This has been Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we'll speak to Piers Steele, one of the world's foremost researchers on the science of procrastination. Hopefully, one of us will come up with a procrastination joke that he hasn't already heard. Submit your best procrastination jokes along with listener questions at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Until next time. Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting with